0: Ezra chapter 6 verses 19 through 22. Ezra 6:19 through22, the title of today's sermon is "The God who saves." The God who saves." For those of you who are Type A personalities, you're frustrated right now because it says I'm supposed to be preaching from Romans. In fact, I'm not supposed to be preaching at all. But the Lord has all these things under His control, and you can pray for Pastor Keith as he's under the weather today. Ezra chapter six, verses nineteen. It's uh, it's always dangerous to pick up, especially preach a sermon from right in the middle of a narrative passage. Right there's a story going on here, and we're jumping right into the middle of it. So. We'll read our passage together, and then I'll try to catch us up to speed about understanding the context of it before we get the meaning of it. Okay, let's read Ezra chapter six, verse nineteen through twenty-two. I still hear a few pages, so that's okay. If you get to Nehemiah, you went too far. Ezra six nineteen. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priest and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priest and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The God who saves. Obviously, uh, the history of the nation of Israel is well recorded throughout the entire Old Testament. We could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God goes to this man named Abram it says, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house, and go to a land I'll show you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Then God makes this promise to Abraham. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that was the inauguration of, of the history of the nation of Israel with one man who God made a covenant promise to to make a great nation. Later on in this relationship with, between God and His people, He told them, I'm going to give you this law. And if you obey this law, you will find blessing. But if you disobey my law, you will find cursing and judgment from me. Well, the remainder of the Old Testament is basically a cycle of God's people for periods of time obeying God and living under His blessing. But typically, those periods of time didn't last very long until the people of God were doing things like worshiping false idols and intermarrying with pagan people, which God had commanded them not to do, and they would find themselves under God's justice and under God's wrath because of their sin and their rebellion uh, toward God. But at one point in uh, in time, in the history of the nation of Israel, things were really bad. Even in God's patience and long-suffering to His people, He allowed a foreign nation to come in and destroy the nation of Israel, their city, the walls of the city, and most importantly, the temple of God, the place where God's presence resided with His people had been destroyed by a foreign nation. And all of this was happening under the hand of God, you see, God was judging His people because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion against Him. And so they're, not only their town and their city and their walls and their temple is destroyed, but they are taken as slaves out of their homeland to a foreign land. And just as the group sang about dark nights, and crying out to God in the midst of what seems to be very dark situations, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had experienced that darkness. They had gone from having this close, intimate walk with God to being slaves in a pagan country under pagan rule and rules. But God, in His mercy, And in his grace, doesn't leave his people there. He he allows them to be released from that captivity, and they make their way back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they are eager to rebuild the temple. They're eager, eager to rebuild the city of God, and they do so. And here in Ezra chapter 6, we pick up the story after the temple had been rebuilt. And now the temple is rebuilt, and we can go in, and we can worship God again. And so throughout this story, throughout this account from the history of the nation of Israel, we see clearly a picture of a God who saves we see clearly a picture of a God who redeems. Now, earlier on in the history of the nation of Israel, you'll probably remember Moses goes to God. Moses asks God, God, what is your name? What should we call you? The people want to know, how should we address you? God responds by saying, I am who I am. Now, not many people get to name themselves, right? Typically that's done by our parents before we're born. But for God to try to give an indication of who He is in words is too much. So He simply says, I am who I am. I am eternal. I am more than words. I'm indescribable. My nature is not like anything that you know. So God's name is very important throughout the history of the nation of Israel. In fact, if you look at our passage today, in verse 21, your Bible likely capitalizes the name for Lord. That is God's proper name, Yahweh. I am who I am. Lots of significance with God and His name. This was the name that God gave Himself to remind His people of that covenant relationship with their God. They could call Him Yahweh. But then, in the fullness of time, God came into the world. Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost. And do you remember in Matthew chapter 1 what the angel said to Joseph? Said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. The name Jesus carries a meaning. In fact, Jesus is an English transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. So Yeshua or Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Guess what it means? Yahweh saves. Jesus' name literally means God saves. Yahweh saves. So in this passage, as we look back and recount the happenings of the people of Israel, we're reminded that we're to see these things in light of the glorious fulfillment of Jesus so let's look at it together. In verses 19 and 20 of Ezra 6, we see recovered worship. There was a sense of recovered worship from the people. It says this, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priest and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. So throughout the history of Israel, the keeping of the Passover was very significant because this annual feast commemorated a very crucial point in time for the nation. Uh, Pastor Keith, when we do The Lord's Supper often talks about this because, of course, the original Lord's Supper was Jesus and his disciples in the upper room at the time of Passover. What were they considering? What were they thinking about when they were thinking about the Passover? Well, of course, they were commemorating that point in the history of their nation where they were in Egyptian bondage under Pharaoh. You remember this, right? Pharaoh has God's people, and they are slaves under Pharaoh. And God calls Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't listen. So because of that, God sends a series of supernatural plagues. The The river was turned to blood. And there were frogs and gnats and locusts, all signs to Pharaoh of the power of God and that he should relent and let the people go, but he wouldn't. So God sent the 10th plague, which was the death angel. And what was going to happen is that night, the death angel was going to visit every household in Egypt and he was going to kill the firstborn of each of those homes. But only the homes that took the lamb and sacrificed the lamb and took its blood and put it on the door of the house, then the death angel would pass over the house and wouldn't kill the firstborn of that family. And so the nation of Israel got together annually, to remember this, to commemorate the deliverance that God had given them, that God had saved them from Egyptian bondage in supernatural ways. So this was meant to be very experiential for the people. You may not know this, but this was a familial type of thing that would happen In fact, the head of the household would go out to their herds and find this lamb about 10 days, at least 10 days before the Passover. And they were called to separate this lamb from the herd and bring it into their home and actually live with this lamb before it was slaughtered. And then on that day, they would commemorate that by taking the lamb to the temple where the Levites were there and the priests were there to sacrifice this. And so we see as God's people, they're coming back, they've rebuilt the temple. Now they're ready to re-engage in worship to the Lord. One of the things we may not understand is it was estimated that there were likely 70 Thousand worshipers at that time in the temple ready to commemorate the Passover. And according to the law, there had to be one at least one lamb for every 10 people. So you're thinking 7,000 lambs, 7,000 heads of household in a courtyard that was relatively small with little room to move around. And as that lamb's throat would be cut, the priest would catch that lamb's blood and put it on the altar. And it was a bloodbath. There was literally blood everywhere. And it reminds me a few years ago when I was doing student ministry here, we were teaching on a Wednesday night talking about the gospel and Jesus, what he did. And a young lady came up after the service and said, Tony, I have a question for you. She said, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up understanding these things, but what is your all's fascination with blood? She said, it's kind of weird. She said, you all sing about being washed in blood. You commemorate drinking blood. Like, what's going on? So for those of us who've grown up in this, this this is normal for us. We understand what the blood of Christ means and commemorates for us. But even for us, if we would have been in the temple at this point in time, 7,000 lambs, likely our eyes would be wide. And we would be in awe of what was happening they came back to commemorate in worship what God had done, that God had saved them. It was meant to remind them that God is in the business of saving people. But here's the question, what were his people saved from? All the way back to Egypt, what were his people saved from? They were not saved from Pharaoh. They were saved from God himself. And this is an incredible truth that we have to understand about the gospel, that when we come to faith in Christ, we recognize what the blood of Jesus is all about for us. That is not intended to save us from ourselves, like the self-help culture would say. It's not intended to save us from evil people in the world. No, the blood of Christ saves us from a holy and just God. Because of our rebellion against him, we deserve his just wrath. And it's only because of the blood of Christ applied to our lives and our souls that that justice passes over our lives. And so this is a reason for worship. This is a reason to to come together as the people of God and celebrate the blood of Christ because you can see it, can't you? The blood of those lambs in Egypt, the blood of those lambs commemorating the Passover and those sacrifices didn't have the power to save anybody. They were simply a foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God who would come The one that John the Baptist would call out on the road and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why the blood of Christ is so important. The Scriptures say He was pierced for our transgression and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Sometimes at the invitation time especially, we sing a hymn of response, just as I am. And there's a phrase in that song that says, just as I am, without one plea, that thy blood was shed for me. That's the truth of the gospel. That Jesus came as the Lamb of God to lay down His life and shed His blood for us. We can come together and celebrate that and worship. But not only do we see restored worship, we see a reconciled community. Look down in verse 21. Look who is engaging in this worship. Verse 21. It says, "It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Well now we would expect that. The Jewish people. They come back, they take part in the Passover, this festival, but the sentence doesn't end there. There's a comma. And also, by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. This is an incredible truth. Now, we have to recognize that this worship hadn't taken place in one or maybe two generations. So we're talking about people who are experiencing the Passover and they've never experienced it because they were in captivity for so long. They've heard about it, they've heard the stories of the Passover but they've never experienced it for themselves. So the Jewish people get to come back and experience it for the first time what the Passover is. But it's also more than that. It says, but also all who joined them and separated themselves from uncleanness. So the Passover was open at this point to more than just those who returned, and were Jewish. As we've been studying from the book of Romans, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody who will repent and believe. And that's what this phrase says. Those who had separated themselves from uncleanness. They had recognized that in order to join in worship, they had to say no to these pagan practices and this worldliness, and they had to trust in the one true God. And they did. They were part of this incredible worship service. And this is great news for people of the world, right? Romans chapter 10 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, this message of the Passover, this message of the blood of Christ, isn't only for those who have power. It isn't only for those who are elite in culture. It isn't only for those who come from a certain socioeconomic status The gospel of Jesus Christ is open for all who will believe. Jews and Gentiles. And you may be here today, and maybe you walked in this worship gathering today, and as you look around, you're thinking this, if these people knew my sin, if these people knew the depravity in my life, I would be shunned, away from this. Let me just say for a moment to somebody thinking like that, look, we are all sinners who've been saved by God's grace. We are not elite. We don't have our lives all together. We are simply trophies of God's grace. He's given us the faith to believe. We've repented from our sins and we're on a track to serve the Lord with our lives. That's it. So if you're here today, the gospel of Jesus is for you. No matter what sin you've committed in your life, you're not too far gone for God. Your sin has not gone beyond the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to atone for that sin. If you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, the Bible says you can be saved. You can be an object of this God who we see in Scripture who glorifies himself by saving people. This is incredible. This is a picture of Old Testament missions that this Passover lamb, this Passover celebration was open to Gentiles and to Persians and to Moabites and to those who were like Ruth, and to those who were like Rahab, all who had repented of their sins and held out empty hands and trusted in the Lamb of God to cover their sins. This is the God who saves. And we see that not only in the Old Testament, not only in the life of Jesus, but also at the end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 says this, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 9, For you were slain, listen to this, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is the work of a God who has saved, who is saving, and for His glory will save in the future until the end of time, until He makes all things new. So we see restored worship, We see a reconciled community of all kinds of people coming under the auspices of this God who saves. And finally, we see a restored joy. Look in verse 22. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God is the giver of joy. Following the Passover, they would enter into this feast, the feast of the unleavened bread where they would partake of specific foods. So maybe for us, think of like the turkey at Thanksgiving. For them, they had these specific foods that reminded them of what God had done. And it was a feast, it was a celebration of who God was and what He had done in their lives. In addition to that, and more importantly than celebrating, was the joy that came from the people's realization of God's work on their behalf. Maybe some others of you have walked into this room today and you're going through a difficult time. You're going through a dark time. And as the group sang this morning, you thought, that's me. I don't know what God is doing in my life, but things are hard and I'm struggling. And you may say, there's not much joy in my life right now. Let me recall for you, that you serve a God who loves you and has saved you. And by His grace, He has given His only Son to be the Lamb of God so that you could know Him, so that your sins could be forgiven. And God has promised to never leave you or forsake you, even in the midst of difficult days. And so today, even as the writer of Psalm, Psalms cried out to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. May this these truths about the nature of God, that He is the God who saves us, provide for all of us this encouragement and this joy that we can never get over that would propel us into a life of love and service and boldness and courage and perseverance even in the midst of difficult days because we serve a God who loves us and cares for us. In conclusion, there's a story in the Gospels about the religious leaders coming and asking a question. If Jesus is God, why is he hanging out with the sinners? If Jesus is God, why is he having feasts with sinners? You remember Jesus' response to the religious leaders? He says, if you know God, if you've experienced the grace of God, you have to celebrate That God is a God who saves. He brings the dead back to life. We ought to celebrate. We ought to say amen. We worship the God who saves. He gives us community with the ones who save. And He's given us joy because He saved us. Let's thank Him for these truths today. Lord, we say hallelujah. We say praise God because you're a God that before the foundation of the earth established an eternal redemptive plan to save a people for yourself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, the the truth that we can be objects of that type of grace and love Lord, we know we don't deserve it. But we praise you that now we can call you our Father. We have been adopted into your family. We can cry out to you and say, Abba, Father, Lord, we have this intimate relationship with you. And Lord, thank you that even as your people were brought back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and to worship You, and to be reminded of these incredible truths of who You are. Lord, thank You for that reminder today in our lives. Lord, may it produce within us joy. May it produce within us perseverance and confidence for Your namesake. Lord, You are the sovereign God. And just at the end of that passage, when it says, You turn the heart of the king of Assyria to fund the project of rebuilding the temple. or we know that you're in control of all things and that gives us incredible joy and confidence. Lord, I pray for one here today and as they listen to this and as they've heard the gospel about the blood of Christ that was shed on behalf of sinners. Lord, they've never repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. God, may today be the day that they cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. Lord, we know that that's always a prayer that you answer. Lord, thank you for these truths. Help them to take root in our souls that we may live in light of them. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.